0: Welcome to CRT2, Columbia Race Talks, Critical Race Theory. I am Flores Forbes, And I am Kendall Thomas. In this episode, our Columbia Law
1: School student team brings you a story about critical race theory, Columbia Law School, and the legacies of slavery, the black male initiative at CLS. Join us for this deep dive into what critical race theory is and why it matters. And now
2: to our story. Why do we not know about Frederick Wells and a 16 foot cross burning on the campus with 20 Klansmen fully hooded running through a dorm? What's our responsibility to this past? What does it call us to do? What are the ethics of memory? Thank you for tuning in to Critical Race Talks. I'm Coco John from
3: China. I'm a 3L at Columbia Law School.
4: My name is Stephanie Abrahams. I'm an LLM student from Toronto, Canada, and I'm also at Columbia Law School.
0: And I'm Paul Riley. I'm a 3L at Columbia Law School from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. We are super, super excited to have all of you tuning in to this podcast episode. It's a mouthful, Critical Race Theory, Columbia Law School, and the Legacies of Slavery, the Blackmail Initiative. It's a lot that we're trying to cover in our time together, but these topics are timely and important, um, specifically as they relate to the black male experience at Columbia and beyond. Stephanie, I know you were integral in in thinking about the the, the setup of this episode, and so wanted to turn it over to you to give some insight into where we're going with, again, this loaded topic, so many different moving parts uh, that we're trying to pull together.
4: Loaded is definitely the right word. (laughs) I mean, so, You know, you heard from Professor Frankie about the Frederick Wells story, and so that's going back into Columbia's history of slavery and the legacy that that persists today. And so we're not only looking at the past, though we're also going to journey through and see where we're at now, currently. Um, And we're going to be looking at things like the hyper surveillance of Black men. We're going to be looking at. You know, performance expectations for Black men and how that differs um in different uh, social locations and contexts. We're also going to be looking at um, thinking about how Black men often find it difficult to organize and how there's many much fewer um, organizations focused about around gender for Black men than there are for Black
0: women. Or Mm -hmm. to think about this topic, we have leading scholars who are going to help guide and center our discussion. Uh, For the latter half with the theories, we have Professor Darren Hutchinson, who's going to talk to us about a theory he coined termed multidimensionality, which we'll get into in a few minutes. And we also have Professor Athena Matua, uh, who's going to talk to us about multidimensionality and also specifically progressive masculinities theory, which focuses on how Black men can actually chart their own future uh, using the tools in critical race theory. So we have our two theorists who are going to help us on the back end. But as Stephanie was talking about, history and understanding our past is so crucial to this. And we are super grateful to Coco, one of our <laughs> co-podcasters, who has done a lot of great work with Professor Catherine Frankie of Columbia Law School. And so definitely wanted to get you to set the scene for us on how we should think about this history sure. and the legacies of slavery.
3: Sure. Yeah. So Professor Catherine Frankie is my professor at the seminar on Columbia Law School and the Legacies of Slavery. This is a ongoing project, which has been going on for several years. And Professor Frankie is gonna share with us some of her research results. And we're gonna hear one of the most, probably most horrifying stories um, that, that happened on campus. So let's tune in for Professor
2: Frankie and
3: um, her telling of Frederick Wells' story.
2: I'm Catherine Frankie. I'm the James L. Doerr Professor of Law at Columbia Law School. Um, I direct the Center for Gender and Sexuality Law at the Law School, and I'm the Faculty Director of the ERA Project and the Law Rights and Religion Project. So 1924, there is a, uh, a Black male student, uh, Frederick Wells, who is living in Fernald Hall, which is on the east side of the campus next to the journalism school. It's still a dorm. There are several white law students also living in that dorm. And when they learn that Mr. Wells is not a janitor, but is a resident of the hall and a law student, they form a committee and organize to have Mr. Wells evicted, removed from the dorm because they don't think that they should have to live with a black man. Thankfully, the dean who was in charge of residential living said, no, if you're uncomfortable with him living here, you can leave. What happens next is horrifying. 20 hooded members of the Klan from New Jersey enter the campus at night, two days after the university says, we're not gonna evict him. They bring with them a 16 foot wooden cross and burn it in front of the dorm in protest of Frederick Wells living in the dorm, his mere presence in the building. They then run through the building, screaming racist, violent, threatening things about Wells. They shove notes under his door, the typical kind of, you've been visited by the Klan, you be warned, your life is in danger, threatening him to leave. This event makes the newspapers in every state in the country, the New York Times, all the New New York papers, but other papers as well, huge amount of publicity. And Wells says, I'm gonna hang in there. I'm not gonna let them intimidate me. The threats against him continue. The NAACP gets involved and backs him up. And eventually he just can't take it anymore. And he transfers to Cornell and graduates from Cornell Law School, returns to New York to become a very prominent tenant's rights and anti-gentrification advocate and lawyer in Harlem. The students, who organized to have him ejected. The leader, John Rucker, was from the South. He actually flunked his third year exams along with a third of the law school class and did not graduate. Yet he was invited by the dean to give a very prestigious address to the law school on the retirement of three members of the faculty. He suffered no negative consequences for engaging in this behavior. Wow. Faculty allowed him to graduate along with the others who had flunked in the fall. They had some special, you know, write a little paper and we'll let you graduate. And he went on to have an unremarkable and uninteresting legal career.
4: Okay, Wow. That's crazy. Because one, I can't believe that he graduated. Two, I can't believe that there were no consequences.
3: Yeah. And, and he also was exalted to to give a speech at the retirement of faculty. I, I can't believe that happened.
4: I can't believe it either, honestly. And, you know, it, it actually bears a resemblance to what we're going to be talking about later in terms of the hyper-surveillance of Black men. I mean, there was just this one Black man on campus, Frederick Wells, and yeah. he was up in arms. Like, they could not handle it, right? right. Um, the point where they had to go through like all these extreme measures to try to get him, get him off of campus.
3: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, before we get into that, we are going to examine what's happening with Columbia Law School, and is there anything in our history that's impacting the current um, environment? Of, uh, of Black men on campus. And Professor Frankie is gonna talk about um, the, the relationship of Columbia Law School and slavery. Let's hear it out.
2: Columbia doesn't have the same kind of history that say Georgetown or some of the Southern schools have, or even Northern schools like Harvard or Yale, in the sense that the institution actually enslaved people or invested in the slave trade. Instead, we wanted to look at Columbia, the law school specifically, and its relationship to the institution in a more organic way. So the law school officially opened in 1858. So this is before uh, the institution of slavery is abolished. Before the law school was founded in 1858, law was being taught at Columbia College, which is what the university was called um, before it became a university. Our first law professor was James Kent, who Columbia Law School affiliated people, we know his name well. Kent was hired in 1793 for a professor of law at Columbia, and he taught for several years. He was an incredibly unpopular teacher. Uh, He got very few students every year, and they usually left after a couple of weeks, Kent was hired because he was friends with John Jay and John Jay was on the board of trustees of Columbia College. Kent was in New York and couldn't find a job. And Jay said, we'll set you up at Columbia. Meanwhile, James Kent enslaved several black people at that time. In his commentaries on law, which he wrote a bit later in his life, um, he wrote explicitly explaining the inferiority of black people. So the law school's first professor, the university's first law professor, James Kent, after whom our current law student's highest academic honor is is named, and the most prestigious faculty chair is named, and a building on the main campus is named, was uh, an enslaver himself uh, and a rabid white supremacist.
4: Okay, so that was 1858 to 1924. Let's see if we can figure out what's going on in 2021.
2: We've had, uh, even this last year, several Columbia Law faculty who have used the N-word in class unapologetically um, and confronted with it by students, not, not only students of color, but certainly black students principally, um, for uh, what, what that means for a white professor to use the N-word in class. They have disavowed any kind of responsibility for the ways in which words wound. Last year, there were 1Ls uh, who were assigned to a class as their first class at Columbia Law School, where a professor made slavery jokes and retaliated against Black TAs that he had hired, who raised this as a problem with him. And a complaint was filed with the university about that, those, that conduct and others that he engaged in that was really offensive, and the university did not pursue disciplinary charges against him. That When instances like this happen, I think it points to what is a systematic problem, not just at Columbia, this is true of really any university, is that we have a formal legal process that is triggered when a complaint is filed, but the bar for proving that a professor, say, has, has violated Title VI, the federal statute that prohibits race discrimination in, in a university, university setting It's so high that it's very difficult to get the university to say, yes, this is a violation of that law. And when they dismiss the complaints, nothing happens. We don't have an intermediate or alternative way of addressing what are forms of structural racism um, and instances of white supremacy in our midst other than formal legal processes. And to me, that's a vestige of the legacies of slavery in, um, uh, in important respects, that the law announces a commitment to creating a, a, not just an equal educational experience for all of our students, but one in which all students can flourish. Yet it falls so short, just like the 14th Amendment does, announcing wonderful um, principles that emerged from the Civil War and the abolition of slavery. But in reality, they've been enormously ineffective in addressing and dismantling structural racism.
0: So, Professor Frankie provides a comprehensive overview of Columbia's relationship with slavery, starting with the story of Frederick Wells in 1924, looking at the inception of our law school with the individuals who were the very first professors having views around Black inferiority and white supremacy, to the very present day where we see instances in the classroom that affect the Black experience. As promised at the top of the podcast, we want to get into the theories that help to Unpack the black male experience. But before doing that, we wanted to give Professor Frankie one more opportunity to just describe how something as um, simple or as basic as the family can maybe provide some context into the gendered notions of freedom and the gender differences that we see today. Let's turn it over to Professor Frankie and we'll be back on the other side.
2: So, marriage became an interesting gateway to freedom for newly freed black people. But it also was an enormous thing to celebrate that black people could have their families recognized. Of course, they had families, they had marriages while they were enslaved, but they were not legally enforceable. And the person who owned you could always sell, sell, sell away your spouse, your children, et cetera. And this happened, of course, we you know over and over again. But one of the things that was difficult in terms of bringing gender into the picture is that the men, the husbands, were made the head of the household, And they were the ones who could enter into labor contracts to do work and be paid for the first time in their lives. And the women were subsumed their legal identity under the identity of their husband. You can imagine that what we see here is a gendered form of freedom, that Black men were free as legal And civil subjects in a different way than Black women were. Now, you know, to have the freedom to have a gendered legal relationship is itself a kind of freedom, but Black women and men were emancipated into a structure that was deeply gendered, and for the most part was not good for women. The very idea of freedom itself always has gendered components to it. You know, to recognize Black men as being possibly, to be legally and socially heads of households was a revolutionary idea, right? That they were not accountable to an owner. So that was wonderful on the one hand. And on the other hand, it was complicated because of what it meant for the gender politics of the family.
0: Wow, so it's so fascinating to see how something as simple but revolutionary as marriage was so significant at that time in creating the Black household. But as Professor Frankie notes, it also created a dynamic where we're now experiencing gendered notions of freedom, mm-hmm. gendered notions of who are who are prioritized. And maybe this is a stretch, you know, keep me <laughs> honest, Stephanie, but it <laughs> kind of feels as if, you know, we get to 1980 with Kimberly Crenshaw and intersectionality. And it seems as if those feelings of the gendered notions of freedom are present, even in her critique of of Black woman being erased from the discourse. But didn't know if you had any thoughts on that.
4: Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. And before we go any farther, let me just, um, give the people a definition of intersectionality, which is a term that was coined in 1989 by Professor Kimberly Crenshaw. And really it's it describes how race, class, gender, other individual characteristics really intersect with one another and overlap. Um, and, you know, today it kind of gets thrown around here and there, intersectionality, intersectionality. But it really, I think, and to my understanding, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it really has to do with Um, the ways in which black women were kind of left out of really pivotal moments of history. So if we're thinking about things like, or movements like um, the women's rights movement, right? Feminist movement. That really was about the progression of white women and really left black women out of the conversation. And if we're talking about things like, you know, the movement for racial justice, that was for the progression of Black men. So we're just, Criminally Crimes really was trying to illuminate, I believe, um, the fact that Black women are often left behind. And, you know, there's something unique that happens when you're racialized and you're also a female, right? So what happens there? What what happens with that intersection? So I think that's kind of where we're at or where we were at in, in the 1980s.
0: And I think to hammer the, the point home a bit more for real life examples, we can look at how we talk about, you know, the pay gap with respect to men and women and how, you know, the going line, even in the policy debates, even on presidential debate stages, is that, you know, women woman makes 77 cents for every dollar a man makes. That's true for white women. When you bring in black women, it's in the 60 plus cents range. When you bring in Hispanic women, it's in the 54 cents range. Yeah. Um, of course, those numbers may have changed slightly, but that just gets to the point of. Erasure and how we talk about policy, how we talk about progression, and whose voices are we prioritizing? So I think, as you noted, intersectionality was so revolutionary and giving us the tools to think about how we can bring Black women into the conversation. And as you noted, that's the 1980s, 1990s. What we begin to see in the late 1990s, early 2000s is the emergence of people call it a post-intersectionality turn, or an intersectionality critique, or evolution. But it's basically probing intersectionality and saying, well, wait a minute, intersectionality at least initially is prioritizing the experiences of Black women, of being Black and a woman to subordinate identities. Mm -hmm. How do we account for the experiences of Black men, for example, who have a subordinate identity in being Black but also a privileged identity in being a man? How do we account for what they coin a partially privileged group that doesn't neatly fit into the solely subordination doctrine? And so you see with Professor Hutchinson's multidimensionality, he's building upon um, intersectionality and saying, we need to realize that everyone is multidimensional, that Black men with their partially privileged categories are multidimensional, that when you bring in sexuality, that transforms the conversation. And it seems as if Professor Athena Matu is building off of multidimensionality and merging that with progressive Black masculinities to say, yes, multidimensionality has to be the scope for the Black male experience, but it also is different because with the black male experience, you have these performance-based pressures, this internal and external ordering. Internally, you have to be strong. You can't cry. You have to present as a real man, as she as she discusses in her in her segment. Yeah. And externally, it, it's what we're talking about: intersectionality. You have to be of a certain class, you have to have these experiences. You need to be a provider. And so all of this is happening where you have this revolutionary intersectionality ideal. But then it comes to does it account for the Black male experience? And that's what we want to flesh out with these two theorists in the last half of this podcast. And we'll turn it over to them to introduce themselves. And we'll also provide some real-life application as we hear them develop and explain their theory to us.
1: I'm Professor Darren Hutchinson. Currently, I teach at Emory University School of Law. I was hired to be the John Lewis Chair in Civil Rights and Social Justice. I started my career with several articles dealing with race and sexuality and poverty and gender and created a theory called multidimensionality. And that framework, it really took off in many ways. And I still get a lot of citations to that work. It informs a lot of people's research on sexual identity, particularly as it pertains to issues of race and class.
3: So I know Paul and Stephanie, you tried to explain the definitions of intersectionality and multidimensionality, but uh, we, we still have tried, to hear. I Stephanie, <laughs>
0: said we tried to
3: explain <laughs> it. I thought we hit it on the head.
0: I thought he did a great job,
3: no. But yeah, let's hear what Professor Hutchinson has to say about um, his definition of multidimensionality.
1: A lot of people are familiar with intersectionality. In terms of identity, um, there are intersecting types of identities. Race and gender is a a classic combination that um, intersectionality focuses on. So in many ways, multidimensionality builds from that notion. As opposed to intersectionality, there, there are two different things I was trying to accomplish with that. First was in terms of substance, to introduce issues of sexuality and gender identity, which was not really thoroughly explored in the intersectionality literature. For the most part, it was a discussion of race and sex and how that impacts women of color. But in many ways, by leaving out sexuality and gender identity, women of color was cis-heterosexual woman of color. And so in terms of substance, that's what I wanted to do. But if we just left it in substance, it, there's really not much of a difference. The other piece is there's a conceptual difference. And I developed that dealing with a lot of the critiques of intersectionality and the critiques of thinking about race in the context of LGBTQA politics. The the conceptual extension is to think about everyone's lives as being multidimensional rather than looking at the convergence of different types of subordination.
4: Okay, so we've heard from Professor Darren Hutchinson and his theory of multidimensionality. So let's now turn it over to Professor Athena Mutua, and she's gonna give us some information on her theory of progressive masculinities.
5: My name is Athena Mutua, and I'm a professor at the University at Buffalo Law School. And I tend to write in the areas of critical race theory, uh, at one point, a lot more kind of feminist, masculinist, you know, kind of legal theory. Progressive Black masculinities are the unique and innovative practices of the masculine self actively engaged in struggles to transform social structures of domination.
0: So we have the backdrop on what is progressive masculinities theory, but as I was alluding to earlier, one of the differences with Professor Athena Matua's approach is incorporating this performance based understanding of masculinity. Let's start over to Professor Matua to hear what is masculinity and how does performance implicate that definition and that perception of masculinity?
5: What is masculinity? And that had this kind of whole level of performance-based criteria that could put you in serious danger if you did not conform. And that is um, a big part of masculinity and a big part of patriarchy, right, was dependent on women's subordination and submission that that's what it was all about so uh women's identities are not necessarily defined um on the basis of somebody else's subordination uh, i think this is similar to kind of white supremacy white supremacy is premised on the subordination of everybody else and particularly black folk right so that seemed to us to be a central definitional point but it came with all kinds of other formative stuff so to be a real man you had to be strong To be a real man, you had to control your environment. To be a real man, you had to control your woman. To be a real man, you didn't cry. To be a real man, you don't, you provide for your family. It's hard for poor men, right? You provide for your family. To be a real man was to be not a woman, not gay, not poor, and not a boy, and probably not black. So, And then you had to embody this. You had to act that out. You had to perform those things in order to be a real man. And so if you perform something a little different, you weren't strong, then there was societal compulsion or penalty that's associated with it, right? So boys bully each other. You're not strong. You must be a, what would be the word? I don't know. Uh, You're a punk. And so we can beat up on you. So if you don't act strong, then there are consequences and penalties that the society imposes. Other men impose, women impose, who wants a woman, right? Who wants a weak man? Whatever that means, right? So women impose those penalties, men impose those penalties. The society imposes those penalties if your performance of the real man, right? Your performance of masculinity doesn't comport with the definitions of a real man. So we're trying to, to capture those performance-based compulsions, instructions. Uh, and, and so we're using multidimensionality together with masculinity theory to try to capture that. Um, and at the, at the time, that stuff is not really articulated in intersectionality theory because it's talking about the intersections of race, class, gender, those sort of things, and not this performative level as much even though it's embedded in it.
3: So when Professor Matua was talking about the performance and what a real man is, I think she was alluding to some of the heteronormative traits. Um, by introducing sexuality into your theory, Professor Hutchinson, what do you think it does to the discourse?
1: Sexuality is really adding that to the picture because I think in general masculinity studies, it's assuming a heterosexual object. I mean, I think it feeds um, homophobia and, and heteronormativity within Black communities um, for one issue. Also, I think it, it makes it very difficult for queer folks of color to interact and feel safe within communities of color because of this overlay of masculinity and the expectations of how one should behave if they're a member of that um, population. It fuels a lot of violence against um, transgender individuals, um, homophobic violence against gay men and lesbians, especially violence against um, trans women, trans women of color in particular. And I think a lot of that has to do with masculinity and toxic masculinity, how many men of color embrace those ideas. So focusing specifically on Black men... Professor Matua, can you give us
3: some examples of gender differences that Black men experience? We
5: see that um, we have a much higher rates of Black male incarceration, right? So um, what's Kimmel's first name? Can't think of it at the moment. You know, said you know, crime has a male face, um, and so we see Black men suffering the profound harms of um of mass incarceration. And the other kind of distinct, uh you know, or not a distinction, a difference, um, that we saw kind of early on then was was racial profiling. And that may still be the case, that we found that um black men were stopped more by police than black women.
0: So when thinking about mass incarceration and policing, I think it just speaks to the theme we've been talking about throughout this entire episode which is this notion of hyper surveillance of black men. We saw it in 1924 with Frederick Wells. And of course that wasn't necessarily the police surveilling Frederick Wells, but it was the KKK and white students who felt that he didn't belong, who tried to use threats and intimidation and violence to control and to suppress Frederick Wells, a black man, among Columbia's campus. What's unfortunate is that we have recent examples, as recent as 2019, of Black Columbia students feeling the effects of this hyper-surveillance and even violence inflicted upon them. And I know, Stephanie, you were doing some research on the Alexander McNabb story, and I I think the listeners would gain a lot from just hearing the details of of what all happened in 2019.
4: Yeah, so unfortunately, this this kind of thing is still happening in recent times. So back in April 2019, there's a Black male student by the name of Alexander McNabb. Story is that he walked into Barnard College going to get some free food they were having an event there giving out free food so he went to get some um he declined to show his uh student id card to the public safety officers and so what they did five of them is follow him um and actually pin him down they physically restrained him until he eventually showed him his id demonstrating that he was in fact a columbia student um but not not only Did he have to show it to them? They actually took it. They confiscated it and saying that they needed to verify his ID. Um, So, I mean, that's just another example. And so, you know, in his perspective, the rule that you have to show your ID card after 11 p.m. was unequally applied.
0: And I think what's crazy about that, I mean, as you alluded to, five Barnard public safety officers arriving at the scene, ultimately pinning him down. Five of them. That's... I don't know. It's, it's unfortunate, and I think it just speaks to the continuum of again, 1924 to 2019. What's even more, I don't even know if the word is heartbreaking or just demoralizing, is the fact that we have another story um, in 2021 that wasn't, you know, heavily documented or you know, in newspaper articles in the same way that the Alexander McNabb story was. But there was reporting, as it was recounted to us, of a black Columbia University student going to Foodtown, one of the local grocery stores about seven blocks from campus. He went into the store, ultimately decided he didn't want anything, left the store, and it turns out one or two employees from the food town grocery store followed him a few blocks um, under the assumption or the premise that he had stolen something. I know that there's going to be work done, you know, over the coming months to, to rehash that. I think the ironic part of that is we've heard the story is that they had a Columbia Safe Harbor sign in the window, <laughs> essentially saying it's safe for Columbia students to, <laughs> to be that's here. Cool. But that's just another example of the surveillance and this, this notion of the experiences of Black men at Columbia. And also this, this idea that as you're navigating these spaces, I think this is what Professor Hutchinson and even Professor Martu were getting at, is that when you're in this partially privileged world, Yes, you have the privilege of being a man, but that is also activated in ways that are so shaky and so rocky that yeah. even if it is a privilege, it doesn't feel as stable in the way that I think their there, there questions about intersectionality just raise around, you know, is this capturing the fact that Black men still have these nuanced experiences, even within this privileged identity? But yeah. I know we've been, yeah, I know we've been talking a lot about you know, Colombia. it's unfortunate that we have so many examples of this hyper surveillance. But Stephanie, I know you have I, I know I have personal stories, but I know you have personal stories as well. Yeah. Of your family members experiencing, again, this theme of hyper surveillance as, as black men um, navigating the world in Toronto, in the United States and and, and uh, frankly, around the world, if I'm being honest. But Everywhere. when do you get the opportunity to share that story.
4: Yeah. And I mean, you know, I'm not a black man, but I am a black woman and I do have black male uh, family. So my brother and my father, I remember growing up, um, I think I must have been around 13 or so. My dad got a brand new car. It was very sleek, black. And I just remember him coming home time and time again saying, "Okay, I got stopped again. The police stopped me. And it was really for nothing other than to just um, make sure that he actually owned the car or to use the car. And of course, he owned the car. Um, But it got so bad that it it was actually interfering with his, like, day-to-day life. Like, he had to get to work and he was being stopped, which takes up time, obviously. And it's obviously an uncomfortable situation. So it actually got to the point where he, you know, said to my mom one day, like, you know, we got to switch cars. I need to drive your car because this isn't working for me. So, of course, you know, my mom got a sweet deal out of it. But I just remember thinking, like, are you kidding me? Like, this is what it's come to? Like, you can't drive your car? Um, And it, it was kind of heartbreaking in the sense that he said it just like, matter of factly like this is what we have to do like something that he was just so used to um and again I'm from Canada I'm from Toronto and what we love to do in Toronto is drive down to Buffalo to shop right like this is pre-pandemic and so be my mom me my sister who all love to shop and then also my brother my brother does not like to shop so what we would do, because he was much younger than us, <laughs> we'd say, Matthew, you got to take the bags to the car, which he <laughs> which he actually graciously did every time. Um, so we'd shop, 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 give him the bags. Um, and he must have been around 14, 15 at this time. I remember giving him a bunch of bags and um, him not coming back for for a while. You know, usually it would take him 10 minutes max. Um, but I remember half an hour passing and, you know, I'm just thinking, where is he? Like, you know, maybe he got went to get ice cream, something like that. But he comes back, um, you know, kind of distraught, kind of not. But he says, oh, I got stopped by the mall cops. He says that they stopped him to make sure that the bags that he, were carrying, that he was carrying were carrying were his. You know, they didn't believe that he had all these bags and uh-huh. they must be stolen or something like that. And I was I was livid, you know. Um, and I guess for him it's like, yeah, you know, I'm used to mall cops watching me or all all kind all kinds of, the uh, you know, security officers, cops. But I was just upset about it, and those kind of things stick with me, you know. And I mean, I have tons of examples, but those are just a couple of them.
0: Yeah, thank you for for sharing. I know that, you know, this is a podcast where we're you know thinking about these things at a theoretical level, but it's also for you and for me and for the listeners. It's real life. It's not a it's not a game. It's not a theory oh, cool. or a textbook at, at all. It's really experiences that we have to talk about and that we have to, to document.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Thank you again for sharing your story. I think Professor Hutchinson mentioned some really interesting social psychological like survey and research on how people perceive the age of Black men and Black boys. Let's hear it
1: out. A lot of social psychologists recently have been studying um, the issue of how whites perceive Black children. And there are a lot of studies where they will show people pictures of children. Some of them deal with law enforcement folks as participants, and they ask them to guess the age of the children. And by and large, children of color and Black children, it's the disparities are are the worst. Um, There's always an overestimation of the age of children of color um, in those studies. Black Boys have the highest disparity. So you think about it, why do they think black boys are just much older than their actual age? There's some research on there. I think a lot of it has to do with gender and masculinity issues the way that Black men or males, I guess you can say, generally are portrayed in society, it's really hard for people to grasp the concept of a Black male child as being a child and what all of that means in terms of social construction, that they're not dangerous, they're innocent, they should be given multiple chances and the benefit of the doubt, we can forgive their transgressions, they're not intending to harm even if they commit a harm. So those, you know, we treat in that way. But if we're imagining these Black kids and Black boys in particular as
0: adults, then we don't give them that type of benefit of the doubt. So we heard from Professor Hutchinson how the perception of young Black boys can be taken for granted, how they're not given the benefit of the doubt. Prior to that, we talked about hyper surveillance at Columbia Law School and hearing Stephanie's story um, of her father and brother's experience. I want to shift gears a bit because I think another big topic, in addition to hyper surveillance and perception, has to do with why it seems to be so hard for Black men to organize. And as a student at Columbia Law School, I felt this in that we have a strong affinity group population. Uh, we have our Black Law Students Association, also known as Balsa, which is the home for many Black students that come to Columbia Law School. We also have other student groups. One in particular being the Empowering Women of Color, or EWOC, and that's where women of color more broadly can come together outside of their respective affinity groups to create and cultivate this community. They have robust programming throughout the year. They have an amazing gala where you have their prominent speakers and alums come. And what was interesting is we started the Black Men's Initiative at Columbia Law School uh, last year in 2020. What was so fascinating about that experience is as we were trying to get that off the ground, there were very real concerns around you know, how do we do this? This feels very weird. What does it even look like for Black men to come together? I know we're going to talk about this later, but are we recentering men in the way that, you know, Kimberly Crenshaw and others tried to raise awareness around how that can be problematic. So we were just bracing with all of this, but it felt like that organizing was an experience that was sort of awkward for for Black men. And I think it was more self-imposed in our own perceptions of it. But that was just my experience. Stephanie, I know you've done some work in in Toronto. I don't know if you want to speak on on what that was like, you know, organizing. But it just felt different and awkward initially in the the Black male context, uh, probably because there just wasn't a framework there there for us.
4: Yeah, and I mean, this is something that, you know, wasn't made obvious to me initially. But now that we're talking about it, now that we started talking about it, I'm thinking, okay, I actually don't know of any um, Black male I guess, lawyer groups where I'm from in Toronto, right? Like I'm part of two or three different ones uh, for Black females. Um, But it didn't occur to me like, hey, what's going on with the men? Do they have their own thing? And maybe they do, but I am definitely not aware of them. So, I mean, that's one thing, right?
0: Is it a numbers game? I think when we're thinking about the Black Men's Initiative, it really came from Professor Kendall Thomas seeing a photo of, I believe it was the class of twenty. 20 or 2021, they were standing in front of one of the buildings at Columbia Law School, and the Wakanda pose is when Black Panther was huge. And you know, Mm -hmm. one of the things that we talk about was just how stark the photo was, just the representation of black men. You know, where are the black men at Columbia Law School, and more broadly? And Stephanie, I know you have some statistics on this, but I mean, that is a question. Mm -hmm. I know the New York Times posed this a few years back: the missing black man. But you know. There is something, I don't know if it's a numbers game or enrollment that's solely explaining this, but
4: yeah. I that, mean, that one has to be part for, of it. It's one thing to read about it and then another thing to actually see it like glaring right in front of your face, right? Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. So over the pandemic, there's been an overall decline in enrollment rates um, in general for both men and women. But when we're talking about specifically Black men, that number is quite low. So the enrollment rate for Black men dropped 14.3% over the spring of 2021. And that's in comparison to the 6.9 percent the previous spring. Um, And when we're talking about Black women, Black the enrollment rate for Black women fell 6.9 percent over the same time period. So we're talking about like more than double of a difference. So the disparity disparity between the two is actually widening, and it's you know quite a disturbing thing to think about.
0: And I think too, it, it it clearly is a numbers thing. You know, bodies and seats in these communities being actively involved. What's actually really fascinating is one of our professors of our critical race theory course, Professor Flores Forbes, he wrote a book entitled Invisible Men. And in, in one of the chapters, he talks about this phenomenon happening at the administrator level at Columbia, I'm um, a high level administrator at Columbia in the community affairs um, group. And what he basically discussed um, in his book was how the black men tried to organize they tried to do these lunches to build community to have people come together. He noticed when he started that there were about 30 or so black men there, as he describes in the book. And he you know, posed to the other organizers, you, know, "Is this everyone?" or you know what is going on?" And one of his um, co-workers or colleagues said, there are actually over a hundred or so black men who are in this higher grade, this higher level of the administration. And Professor Forbes responds, you know, where are they? Why haven't they come? And one of the colleagues blatantly said they didn't want to be around Black men. They didn't want to be seen with Black men in this environment. And he concludes, you know, obviously that's a problem, you know, because Black men are surveilled. You know, they need this community that when you step back into your home and take off your suit or your clothes or you turn your your key in the door, you're just like every Black man. And and that just creates more of a An impetus to create this community. And so it's just as starking for me to see that it's not only happening at the student level where it could be a a numbers representation thing, but even when there is a a robust, I don't know if we say a hundred is robust, but there are a hundred plus black male administrators and they're still feeling deterred by building that community. I think it just begs the question, why is it so hard to organize And maybe that internal feeling of not being associated plays a part.
4: Mm -hmm. And I think the awareness of it, the fact that they're aware of the hyper -hyper surveillance is really telling, actually, as well. Right. Yeah. Yeah. They're conditioned. They've been conditioned to feel this way.
3: So Um, Professor Hutchinson also has something to say about the reason why it is so hard for Black men to organize. Let's hear what he has to say.
1: One at the heart of masculinity. One of the tenets is individualism. You don't need other people. You can do it on your own. Right, and that sounds like you know um, these stories that you know that um, racial resentment tells. It's about men conquering you know, um, the the United States, that whole Protestant, that work ethic thing, I think it had a lot to do with maleness, not not generalized around gender. And I think a lot of men, Black men, a significant number of them buy into that and it makes it
0: much harder to interact. Wow, so there's definitely a lot to think about there with why it's so hard to organize. There is a value in this community as this episode has shown. And I think that that's something that we need to unpack a all- with the theme hyper surveillance that we talked about earlier Mm -hmm. about this entire project. We've been so transparent. Maybe I'm biased, but I think we've just been so transparent around, you know, how do we think about the tension between intersectionality, multidimensionality, progressive masculinities? I think another question is how do we deal with the tension of what could be coined as recentering Black men? You know, when you look at the 1980s and Kimberly Kimberly Crenshaw's critique of the erasure of Black women from the discourse. Black movements prioritizing black men. You know, I think the very fine line we all were walking yeah. <laughs> was around how do we tell these stories without elevating or or prioritizing the experiences of black men at the expense of other people. I don't know if you all felt this, but it just was something that was at the the center of this. Was just something that's worth interrogating, but just the fear of will we miss the mark in how we're trying to distill these stories.
4: Yeah, I mean, I mean, yes, you're right. It is a very, very fine line. You no, know, we've very talked about fine it many, line many, many times. Um, but I think the idea is there's an obvious glaring problem right in our faces, right? Mm-hmm. Like literally in our faces, and there's something that we need to definitely something to talk about, definitely something to try to figure out how to deal with, um, how to address. Um, and I think when we're talking about recentering men, we also have to think, ask the question, why is there a center? Why I is it the... in certain groups or whoever, at a center, right? This isn't something that that necessarily has to have a center. I think we should be thinking I about- think,
3: I think white people is always at the center. We have to like, you know, <laughs> this yeah. is not about we going into a center. It's like we, we want to feel included.
4: Yeah, or dismantling the center even, right? Yeah, dismantling the center, exactly. Dismantling the center. Why isn't there space for all of us? Why isn't yeah. there a space for all of us to- Elevate each other's voices to yeah, think, talk about these things, right?
0: yeah, and I think I think the way we do that is by acknowledging the past, acknowledging that, as Professor Frankie says, there were gendered notions of freedom coming out of, you know, slavery and marriage that Kimberly Crenshaw acknowledging there was a prioritization, whether perceived or real, I, I believe it was true of the prioritization. and how do we acknowledge that and then not make those same mistakes? while also recognizing that there is a value in telling these stories and acknowledging these disparities and then confidently saying, look, 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 this is something that we all need to be talking about and that yeah. we give all you know, anti-racist movements or all racial movements, particularly in the Black community, the opportunity to flourish and to have those perspectives elevated. I mm-hmm. think if we acknowledge the past and are transparent about that, we can move in a direction where we can tell these stories, not as if they're the only stories or the the best stories or the most important stories, but that they're stories. Stories that that need to be told. And I think Professor Hutchinson and Professor Matua, you know, grapple with this very same question. We were thinking about this a lot throughout the podcast and, and we thought it was so important to pose this very same question to them. And we think it might be helpful for you all to hear what they had to say as Experienced scholars and theorists in the space who were dealing with these critiques as they were formulating their their own respective theories.
5: Are we recentering men? Right. Give them five minutes; they'll take the center. Right. <laughs> Why are we doing this? And, and part of my response at the time was, well, feminist and I, I'm obviously in law legal theory has talked a lot about gender relations and gendered structures and so they know something about it and so we need to take this on that was one thought the other thought was and there's this phenomenon out there that nobody's explaining like racial profiling and it doesn't fit into the theory and so we need to deal with that so so I too encountered that same sort of tension about kind of recentering men even when I was talking about a phenomenon that was disproportionately damaging black men
1: for me, you ask yourself, is that what you're doing, right? Are you only defining race around Black men's experiences? And I'm I'm thinking that's not what you're doing. And are you trying to prioritize this group over other groups and saying that your experiences are the only ones that matter and those their issues are secondary issues that are external to the real issue, which is race. If you're not doing those problems and you're not in the space where intersectionality should think that what you're doing is threatening, you're furthering the project of intersectionality by saying, "Here, here's an intersectional space that actually matters. Black maleness matters. If you look at every prison <laughs> in the United States, um, if you look at suspension rates in the United States, homeless shelters, it is really hard to say that black maleness is not a category worth exploring and examining." Um, and so that's really what gave me strength, as I just looked at the experience with subordination. Um, there is a lot of oppression that exists around being a Black man that needs to be discussed in those terms, right? And it needs to be discussed not as a way of saying it's the most important issue, or or that it is race in and of itself, because that's essentialism, um, and not to the exclusion of women of color, but just this nuanced discussion that I think is really what intersectionality, um, the, 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 the potential that intersectionality um, had when it first emerged. And that's what I tried to sort of bring to the fore um, with my analysis. This is another
0: intersectional space. It's not um, recentering. Wow, so we learned some important things from Professor Matua and Professor Hutchinson. From Professor Matula, we've learned the importance of when you see disparities that pique your interest, that are worthy of inquiry, pursue them. Don't disregard the disparities that you're seeing. If, If they're compelling to you, research and explore and uncover what all is happening. From Professor Hutchinson, we learned that intentionality, as we've talked about this throughout this entire project and throughout this entire podcast, that intentionality is key. If your goal is not to denigrate not to place certain experiences on a pedestal, not to say that the black male experience is the only experience. If you're not doing any of those things, you're actually advancing the work of intersectionality. You're actually trying to address the problems we're seeing as it relates to black men. And you're doing it in a way that's saying, these are important, not at the expense of everything else, but that these are important and that we should be talking about them. So those are the takeaways that I got from this, from a theoretical framework. I don't know if you all got other things from it, but that just is what's sitting with and resonating with me um, as we wrap up the podcast.
4: Yeah, I mean, for sure, Paul, I mean, those are some really good um, takeaways from the podcast. And I think for me, what I've discovered is that, or what I've examined a little bit more is that it's not just theoretical. We can't look at these things only in an abstract abstract sense. These are real events that are happening to real people, such as my father, such as my brother, you know, my friends, other extended family. We have to think about the way that this is impacting lives. And I think when we personalize it in that way, it becomes realer and really acts as an impetus for change.
3: I, just, I just love this class, the this seminar on Columbia Law School and the Legacies of Slavery. This, is, this has informed us on how Columbia has dealt with this history of its relationship with slavery. And, and this history will definitely inform us um, how it will help us navigate the future of um, Black men or or black, black masculinity.
4: So this has been a great experience, a great learning experience, and we just definitely could not have done it without our amazing panelists. So first we wanna say a big thank you to Professor Frankie. We also wanna say a thank you to Professor Matua and to Professor Hutchinson you provided such amazing wisdom and insight, and your expertise in these areas have really helped us unpack and unravel a lot and shown us how we can use these tools to navigate the future.
3: Yeah, and we also want to thank uh, Professor Kendall Thomas and Professor Flores Forbes for leading the seminar on Critical Race Theory. And we also want to thank um, Michelle Wilson for helping us
0: creating this podcast. And I want to thank this amazing group uh, Coco, Aww. Stephanie, <laughs> for just putting in the hours and, and thinking about this. I remember our excitement when we got the first email confirmation for our first guest that we were like, it's happening. It's it's in motion. It's it's really coming to fruition. And it's just been such a, a privilege to work with you all on this and to get these scholars and professors and real life stories to to really distill what we were trying to get at at the inception of this, which is that you know, the blackmail experience is one that is unique and one that is worthy of inquiry. and that if you do it in a thoughtful and intentional way, you can have frameworks that can set you up for success, not only today, um, but in the future, so that the experiences of 1924, the Alexander McNabb experience of 2019 or even the Food Town incident of 2021 can be contextualized and understood in the ways that they're operating with the Blackmail experience and masculinity but also so that we can have a space to talk about them so that they never happen again. So thank you all for tuning in. Thank you for spending this time with us. And we hope that this is only the start of continued conversation around critical race theory and around the black male experience.
1: Thank you for joining us. Until next time, I'm Kendall Thomas. I am Flores Forbes. And this is CRT2, Columbia Race Talks Critical Race Theory.